Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Go. Was it you and your brother that did the prediction machine? Yeah. Dude, were you self-funded or did you get venture funded or how did the bootstrapped it? It was a blast, man. Wow. We, I, I, I did a little bit of consulting for about six months. He worked for a company he's now actually working for again um, for, for, for about six months while we got the thing off the ground. But we, uh, we were profitable. We were profitable as a company within about six weeks. We, um, could, it was our living by within the year. Um, and it, we, we, it, I'd love to say it was all like, I, I appreciate the story and that sounded awesome. And I'm proud of what I just said. The timing was also a huge factor as well because nobody was really doing this at that, at that moment. Yeah, of course. But who were your customers though? It depends. So about half our business was B2B. So ESPN, CBS, so media yeah. companies to some degree, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, um, because they wanted to know from a content perspective, who's going to win, what the fantasy projections look like, what the lines were, et cetera. We, we did work with some offshore or not offshore. We worked with some Vegas sports books because they could pay us because you can't pay offshore to, to, you know, uh, our, our little venture. Um, and then, so that was about half of it. The other half were individuals, gamblers and fantasy players who wanted to subscribe to see what our content looked like. Do you like win your fantasy football every year or is it you and your brother? Like, <laughs> I just we, I had our I had our draft last night actually with my brother, um, and, and I'd kick we, your brother out. He's too <laughs> he's got too much of the insight. You should do that alone. <laughs> we looked at it. This is a league. This is year twenty three of a family league we've had, and I love to say this. I think the I think the biggest driving force for my brother and I starting the company we did was the fact that at some point during a game. Packer game, of course, growing up, you know, growing up, it was wake up nine by nine, get out of the house by nine o'clock, go to church, come back, watch the Packer game. Every game was at noon in central. Every game was, you know, the Packers were relevant, but they, they always played at noon on Sunday. And that was our memory. And at some point during the, during the game, my dad decided the game was over, that the Packers were going to lose at some point. Sometimes it was like the second (laughs) quarter and sometimes it was the fourth quarter. And I never understood why, because I'm like, I'm always the optimist. I'm the guy trying to figure out like, how do we come back and win this? You know, what's our chances? And, and for him, it was like, if he could justify to himself that he knew it was over before the game ended, the letdown of the actual loss was better. <laughs> and yet, so my brother and I, I legitimately think my brother and I built this company, it built at least the, the prediction machine part, the, 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 the company, to give context around just how likely it was that the game before <laughs> over in the game would end in a loss for the Green Bay Packers. So he missed a lot of wins then. Cause he didn't. Because <laughs> yeah, that's the nineties too. Like we were good. Like I was gonna say, what, what were we talking? Early eighties or something? I don't uh, know. This, no, this is this is basically from eighty nine, which is Don Mikowski. That's when you know I, my brother and I were, were were more of our kind of formative years to about well, when we started the company, 2000, 2009. So in that, that 20 years was some of the winningest football in the, in the history of a very, very winning football program. Man, your dad must be a negative guy then. He's like, ah, oh, they're going to lose. <laughs> well, hey man, if, if he helped, if he helped like send us down this path, we could have even, we could have either gone that direction or gone the direction we did, which says, you know what? You're not actually right. There's a, still a 47% <laughs> chance that we're going to win dad. <laughs> That's funny. 
and sorry for our international folks. They're probably thinking all they believe in is soccer, and they're probably what the heck are yeah. these guys talking football the whole time? But hey, by the way, don't the analytics tell you that a team should always go for fourth down? Oh, almost always. Yeah, yeah, and, and they never do. Rate. Yeah. Uh, so the the we've done some modeling around that. Coaches, the the um, kind of layman's way to explain it would be that coaches basically coach to minimize the number of questions at the press conference that they get. I know the, that's, that's my theory. Yeah, go ahead. The, the math says that they coach, they coach to keep the likelihood or they, they, they coach basically to extend as far into the game, their chances of winning at all. So instead of maximizing chance to win, which sometimes has the risk of Dry, driving your chance to win down to zero because you're trying you might make a decision that has an 80 percent chance to like increase your likelihood to win and a 20 percent chance to drive it down to zero where you cannot win anymore the coach will make the decision to to not do that basically because they don't want the possibility that they can't win be the case that's the kind of objective math answer that we've found to, to try to model out coaching behavior it's it's never optimal it's just What's going to keep us in the game the longest so that I have fewer, I have fewer questions about why we lost after the game. I mean, a lot of this is, and it kind of talks to your point on Moneyball. We can make, start making the transition back and, and then get into the insurance real quick. But um, I think it's like a, a lot of human behavior, behavioral economics, whatever you want to call it. I, there was a good podcast I listened to by Malcolm Gladwell, and he talked about all these statistics and how, people do the completely opposite. Like they had one thing and you probably know this better than anybody. It was like some statistics, again, I'll butcher this, but it was something like um, the second round draft pick is worth five number ones or something in, in, in economic terms, five times less expensive. So you can get five people is what I'm trying to say for one in the first round. So the, the point is, is, Hey, give up your first round. And, you know, go get some more and you can really do a Bill Belichick, which is why I think he does as well, get lower draft picks that are really good, et cetera. And they, he did this study and I, I think they were working with Daniel Snyder at the time. And this guy was working with him. They had it all planned out and they, he was going to trade the first round. They get right up to the pick and he picks number one. And they, it, it was like, we talked against this. We, we already had this agreement, but yep. you can't help but, Get the Peyton Manning. Of course, Peyton Manning is a good pick. But my point is, you can't help but just, oh, I want that guy, though. It's, that's it's, all that, that matters. It's the fear of – that's a FOMO thing. That's the fear of missing on the guy who goes on to do great. Yeah. I get You're so, exactly right. But I think that's the, the problem with Moneyball is what I'm trying to say is sometimes you have the statistics like the fourth down, like the first round draft pick versus the second round draft pick. You've got all the data that tells you what to do, and you still don't do it. You still and it's so it. interesting that – the, the general takeaway for me from that kind of analysis, and I've seen that analysis before, and there's some, most of it I agree with, so we'll, 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 we'll kind of capture it this way. It's basically in a world of so much uncertainty, he who throws the most darts or who has the most chances to capture the upside of that uncertainty wins. And so five draft picks from the second through the seventh round is better than one in the first, as an example. You're throwing more darts. You're, tra- you're taking more chances at something that, in honesty, right. there isn't that variance from one to the front of the next. Yep. I just find the behavior. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have the data, and you just our our yep. brains are flawed. We won't act on it. It was no different. I think they were talking about Wilt Chamberlain 
since it's a KU reference, right? Will Chamberlain scored a uh, hundred points. Famously, I think he was with uh, Philadelphia at the time. Hundred yeah, points in the game. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, and he did this, and they said, "What was the difference?" He was twenty-eight for thirty-two on the free throw line, and because usually he missed all his free throws. The only way to stop the guy is you foul him, right? You can't stop him otherwise. Otherwise, he's, he's, he dominates. And the difference there was he shot underhanded that game. He did the granny <laughs> shot free throw. Yeah. Interesting. And they had Rick, who's the 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 underhanded famous underhanded. Yeah, yeah Rick, Rick Barry. Well, he used to, I don't know if he still does, but he has the uh best free throw shooting percentage. And guess what? He shoots underhanded. Yeah. Or he shot underhanded. And so they had him interviewing on it. And it was interesting because he's like, what I don't understand, this is him talking, is why people don't want to be great because his point was Will Chamberlain never did it after that again. And you could see the the results. And I've proven that I'm just an, this is him talking again. He says, I'm an average basketball player that made uh, the hall of fame because I shot underhanded and I was one of the best underhand shooters in the game. All these people have to do is shoot underhanded. But when they would interview the folks on the other side, Malcolm Gladwell interview, they said, look, I don't want to do that. It doesn't look good. (laughs) <laughs> it does it. Yeah, so I and it that is kind of makes you pause. It's like they they will they would rather look good than win. Yeah. And it's kind of your coaching analogy, right? Coaching analogy. They're, That's exactly coaching. the coaching analogy. Yep. They they would rather be able to answer the question to the media at the end than to do what they know is the right answer. Yep. In some cases. Anyway. So speaking of money ball, I mean let's ping it back. So now you're in insurance. And I kind of get what you're saying on the money ball piece. Here's what I thought I heard you say. Let me reset it back to you. You said, look, sure. what we've seen on the insurance side of people or the analytics put people in groups, you make decisions off those groups in those personas versus doing like money ball. And for those that don't know money ball, it's looking at each individual player, what their metrics are, how they fit into the team. So you can put a team together based on those metrics, who gets on first the most, Point is, 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 is that what you're trying to say? Yep. There's, there's two big ideas related that I want to, I want to talk through. One of them is I was at a, both of them are related to a conference I recently attended um, where um, one of the questions was, do you think we will ever be underwriting at the policy level? Which means, are we ever going to just look at the policy and sorry, to know everything about that policy Rather than group homogenous group and whatever we call you know whatever we kind of whatever is constituted as a homogenous group, group our understanding of what the likelihood of that would be. Will and the question was it was so interestingly phrased. Will we ever be underwriting at the policy level? And it from as an outsider, which I still am in the insurance world, I was like, well, yeah, of course. And that's actually what we're doing already at Codery. We've already made that leap because we're trying to know everything we can about that policy. Not necessarily what are all the policies that look kind of like it. It's that policy. It's that two. It's that two um, gas stations across the street with the same franchise could have comp- two completely different risk profiles. And yet, in historical insurance, it's okay. We'll give them both the same premium, and it'll all wash out in the end. And yet, there's ways to improve your likelihood for profitability and 
improve the price for the one that's less risky, increase the price for the one that's risky, which also means that you're doing better by the entire, uh, for the entire market if you pay attention to the policy itself. The other thing that happened was I attended a, a talk um, where the overall thesis was leveraging alternative data to under automate underwriting in small commercial business, which is Coterie's entire thesis <laughs> and my job today. It's our whole point. We're going to use as much data as we can in an automated fashion to underwrite. So underwriting is everything before you buy in the policy. It's how much does the policy cost? It's what coverages are you going to get? It's what your limits are. It's what your deductible is. And it's what we exclude. And even if we can write you at all. And I went to this discussion and it was, it was from somebody who has a similar position to mine, but at a major carrier, somebody you would have heard of, uh, a carrier you would have heard of. And he was talking about taking the time to underwrite for small commercial down from something in the, in the vicinity of a week to a few days. While I was working on a product where we just, just launched, where we took the, the time to underwrite a policy from nine minutes to 20 seconds. And I'm like, as long as they're talking weeks and days and we're talking minutes to seconds, we're fine. <laughs> yeah, and the whole we're good here, guys. Like, yeah, exactly. Like we only require two questions answered from an agent or a policyholder about a policy, just business name and address. And we'll go find the attributes of that policy. To your point about Moneyball, we'll go find what your characteristics are that ultimately help us really understand who you are. So what are those characteristics? Think, example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, box score information, which is by translation, you know, the sports translation to yeah, yeah. general firmographic information. How big, big are you? What do you really do? What other, you know, how do you generate your revenue? Um, how many employees do you have? Where are you located? What's the size of your building? What's the roof condition of your building? Just fairly general stuff for the most part still, but stuff that is in, everybody's not paying attention as appropriately as they likely should be. Um, is where we're starting. That's step one. From there, you can get into um, into some of the more granular information around um, and or um, telematics information around some really cool potential big data stuff. But until you have the box score information, until you have that true like firmographic piece figured out, like what what do they do? Who are they? Where are they located? What's the size of their business? And their how much do they likely have to run their business? Those are the things that are critical. Obviously, where they located meaning in part, what's the weather like there? What's the potential for a catastrophe? Mm -hmm. What's our concern related to that? All of that, that's still pretty general stuff. You can go find through third parties, pull together a picture of what that policy is and still underwrite the policy level. For the most part- And this is a policy for a new business or something? Is that what yeah, we're talking a new about? new business. Businesses under the size of about 50 employees, under the uh, size of 50 employees is our is where we live. And in honesty, it's usually one to 20 person companies. And 43% of our- You're telling me done. you can underwrite, if I told you today I was going to go create a business, you could underwrite it and tell me whether you're going to approve it or not in, in 20 seconds? 20 seconds, yeah. Yeah, 40, wow. 43% of our businesses are resident are actually have, are out of residential, so out of their out of people's homes uh, that we underwrite. Uh, two thirds of our businesses are one or two employees. So we're talking micro, micro business, but we're pulling enough information together to still understand who that business is and what they do to understand how to appropriately uh, assess its risk. Silly question, but is it working? Yeah, so far. I mean, I, I mean it's interesting. 
it, it's a really good question because uh, claims, which is loss, is a right. lagging metric, right? You you find out you find out your loss sometimes years later, um, yeah. and so thus far we believe it to be working. You know the other the other kind of big uh, this more to the answer answer directly answer your your previous question. Um, the other big metric that I think we're paying attention to that isn't necessarily normal for a carrier is what even we're trying to optimize for. Because go back to Moneyball. In the history of baseball, for whatever reason, batting average, how often when you went up to the plate, did you get a hit was the metric that everybody talked about. When mm-hmm. what the A's really focused on was how often when you went up to the plate, did you get on base? So you could walk, you get hit by a pitch, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How often did you have a productive outing to the plate? For whatever reason, in the history of baseball, people weren't paying attention to that. And it's the same thing in insurance as well. This is a direct correlation as well for me in terms of like the money ball concept from 20 years ago to insurance now. Loss ratio, which is the percentage you pay out in claims relative to the dollars you bring in, is pretty much that and combined, which is then you add in overhead, is pretty much all anybody talks about. Those are the kind of the two big KPIs. Now, and I'm not the only one who necessarily thinks this way, with the influx of VC money, which is used to investing in SaaS companies, which are about recurring revenue, the real metric is lifetime value. It's all the things. It's how likely are they to cancel? How likely is this policy Mm -hmm. to renew? It's what is this policy going to look like as that business grows over time? And then loss ratio and combined ratio, et cetera. But that that thinking about the entire lifetime of the policy is something that I think people were probably implicitly doing that we're trying to take and make an explicit metric. And in that case, I think objectively we're it's working in the sense that, you know, we've improved the market's ability to understand those attributes. Hits are just sexy, man. Walks are not sexy. That's that's the <laughs> difference, right? That's a really good it's a really good point. What's funny is insurance isn't sexy, which is why we're talking about 20 years later. Now insurance is ready to do the same thing when insurance was probably just a bigger consumer and generator of data as baseball was for the last hundred years. But you're exactly right. It, it, but it goes back to just behavior. I mean, I I think yeah. back to my uh I go back to my, my baseball days and I had a coach, you know, I always wanted to crank one out. You know, I was young and stupid. <laughs> and uh, my coach always made me bunt and I hated it, but I was a great bunter and I would get <laughs> on base all the time. And I think back, I think back on it. And I'm thinking, what? An, Cause every time I remember looking down third baseline and him going, you know, b- sign for bunt. And I would just sit there and see, I was like, yep. damn it. I can't even swing away again. You know, and I'd bunt, but I'd get on. I mean, it, but I just think now back at it, I'm like such an idiot. I mean, you should take pride in being able to bunt and get on base every time. Well, exactly. And you think about in today's game, um, what's called the shift. So talk about baseball where the position, the defensive position players are all on basically one side of the field because a guy is up to bat, usually a lefty that hits it to one side of the field. He could, if he's a decent bunter, not everybody is, but if he's a decent bunter, he could also get on base every single time, but he's not financially incentivized likely to want to get on to want a bunt, he's incentivized by how many times he gets over the fence, which is what he's trying to do, exactly. which yields him hitting it into the defenders a lot as well. And it's it's that bunt would be better a lot of times if you can get on base always. That is the best thing you could do for for your your team's chances to win. But 
that's not something that feels like it's it's what we incentivize and it's not sexy to your point well i've you know i know we're in a rat hole here but i've kind of <laughs> lost interest in a lot of baseball for all these reasons small market versus big market uh, i'm sure petro would would have comments there given in kansas city small market team but the uh to that point nobody bunts anymore i yeah. mean it, well, it's all everybody's swinging for the fences it's a different so, game it's totally it totally is and it kind of slows it down i'll tell you right now that you, you want to you want to tie all of our everything we've basically talked about for the last you know 45 minutes together um and, and at least telling my story, I guess. Uh, I, I actually worked for one of the consulting clients I had through February of 2021. And you went to my LinkedIn. You, I started working for Coterie in March of 2021. In February of 2021, I was talking to, literally presented to all 30 uh, presidents and COOs of baseball. Most of those are the same, but all 30 teams. We presented, presented mm-hmm. out some analysis about how to grow the game. We had six bullet points in there. And it included uh, things like universal DH. It included things though, like how to basically the whole point was fans will care if their team has a chance to make the playoffs. And so how do you optimize to keep the fans excited? So how to engaged? So how do you try to keep as many teams involved in the playoff contention as long as possible? It's the whole point of the, the analysis. And we gave them six different things that included that ultimately Baseball, and I know we're talking very specifically baseball here, but the owner said, or the, the president said, great, have you shown this to anybody else? And I said, not yet. And he said, cool, we're going to swip, swipe this under the rug and not pay attention to it until after collective bargaining. And once we collective bargain, <laughs> then we'll figure out what they're going to do. And I said, peace, see ya. I'm not going to be working in sports anymore. Let's go do something I have a little bit more autonomy over, which is you know a startup in any space, but in this case, what I think is a disruptible space. That's interesting. That is very interesting. But could you just say a little bit more on the the technology again for the insurance? Uh, yep. Is this you know analytics bringing data together via different repositories? Is it, is it a three hundred and sixty degree view of the consumer? Or that's what we're hoping. Uh, and, we're hoping to get. To, yeah, we're hoping to get to that point. And the consumer can mean several different things. And insurance, you know, in the data world, our cons- especially the data world, but in the, our consumers are the business owner the agent who brings that or the distribution partner who brings the business owner to us, our carriers who are bearing the risk, uh, they are reinsurers, which is a whole different world we can talk about another day. And then our investors as well, in addition to obviously with us. But to your point, 360 view of the consumer part is part of it, especially that policyholder. What we ultimately are doing though, is we build a combination of heuristics and predictive modeling. The heuristics are go find all these data sources, bring them in and run those, get them within a few seconds and run those through rules that are underwriters. We only need one or two underwriters, but combined they have 40 years of underwriting experience in commercial insurance. Not right now, we have two. Um, that they've built all of these rules that say, if the at- these attributes exist for this policy, this is what we would do to this policy. And they've automated basically the whole job of the underwriter, but with underwriter mindset. We have predictive mm-hmm. modeling that says, great, well, let's run with that for now and learn about things. And there's two things that are do- we're doing there. One, we're, have- we're allowing the agents and our vendors to help and our own policies where we've confirmed the information to guide the per- guide what values we're using in every case. So it guides the confidence we have in the data that's coming in. And then of course, and I'm sure everybody's mind's already gone there, 
underwriting through data science is where we're headed, which means that we will be predictive around the likelihood of that risk, the likelihood of the probability and severity that there's a claim, the probability and likelihood that they'll renew, the likelihood that they'll cancel, the likelihood even that they'll send in a customer support ticket, which has a dollar cost associated to our business, mm -hmm. is all going to be factored into how we understand that business. You know what's fascinating to me? Well, you tell me, but I, I don't often see too many insurance startups. I mean, are there a lot of startups in the insurance business? Or did you, and, and, how, and what made you guys look at it and go, hey, we've got a niche here that nobody else is doing, even the big guys? Yeah, there's a lot of answer to that question. There's a couple of things I'll mention. The large carriers, everybody just named, and then some love startups because of a concept called adverse selection, which means that startups, there's been four startups, I won't mention them, but you can look them up. There's been four startups that have IPO in the last two years in the insurance space. All of them have lost more than 75% of their day one share value from then till now, because all of them fell through the same pitfalls that the other carriers love to know happens. And that is they prioritize growth over what I call getting insurance, right? But they prioritize growth, which is Let's throw the let's let's market and price the product so that we can get market share. Any piece of market share looks good, mm -hmm. at least for these four that and these four and the ones that have come that are like it. Um, let's prioritize growth at top line to get people excited and then figure out insurance later. Basically, well, that means that all the bad risk goes to uh, mm -hmm. goes to those companies. And all the good risk stays with the companies that uh, want that, that are, want that business or want that individual on board. And so those major players and carriers are, are doing basically one of two things. They're basically allowing uh, any startup that comes along to take the bad risk. And then they're waiting to try to acquire anybody who actually figures it out. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily our end game, but I think that's their end game if we happen to succeed. Uh, their thought. Well, so is your end game more of a buyout? I don't. I Versus would IPO, I you this is this not? is more of a general sentiment. I'd rather work for a CEO who wants to IPO than any than any other solution because that means that all the decisions we're making are because we want this to be the best company that we can make it, and it's we want it to ultimately answer the biggest possible questions. But isn't doesn't the IPO put you back into the market share trap? Uh, it depends. Not now. Because of everybody that came before us, anybody who's going to want to in invest uh, in Coterie is going to want to know that we're doing insurance right. And our entire premise is lifetime value, profitability, and driving down, driving down our expenses and our loss ratio so that the whole funnel of insurance is ultimately optimized better than it has been before. Data Is your CEO a previous insurance guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, as he would state it, he's a recovering actuary. He and I think very similarly. <laughs> he, he, so he has passed, he is one of like basically 1,200, I think, total um, people in the country who have passed the level of tests that he has. And yet he sees the gaps between everything you and I just talked about, which is true predictive analytics and how we look forward and, and value, evaluate things at the policy level. He sees the gaps between that mindset and the traditional actuarial, which, which is much broader in its thinking and less predictive and less accurate then. And the whole premise of what we're doing is 
let's think of it more the way that you and I just talked about it. Let's talk, let's think of it more like kind of prediction machine. Not that that was his thought. Um, and take that, take that to the market to exploit the inefficiency that exists today. Does the possibility of a recession worry you more than most, just because you're going to have less startups, less new businesses, they're going to be coming for insurance. Absolutely. I mean, we couldn't, I absolutely would never root. I would definitely never root for a pandemic. And I wasn't even part of a coterie at the time, but we are in a, we understand that we are in a unprecedented, an unprecedented time as it relates to small businesses being generated and started, you know, to that March, 2020 through today, fortunately has, uh, we, the, the number of business, the number of new small business startups, uh, that have, that hit, that ended uh, hit the market is like 25 to 30% higher than it was for the same time period before that. Cause people kind of working from home realized they might as well, you know, first of all, there was money that flew flooded into the economy to help protect the economy. But then there were people working from home who realized they might as well just do their own thing or thought that they might just want to do their own thing. And that's who the recession hits first to your point. Yeah. yeah if yeah. there's a recession. So but it so, absolutely impacts it. So the recession worries you, which look, recessions aren't good for anybody, but uh, at least not good for most people. It sounds like COVID to say outside of the health issue has yeah. been pretty good. It, it, it benefited our thesis because it allowed us to, it allowed us to grow you know, we weren't trying to prioritize growth. When I say prioritize growth, obviously we, we want to grow. We've been growing exponentially. We're happy about it. Of course. Those are very important metrics to us, of course. I report to the board every month on those or every, every quarter on those. So I understand that mindset. But, sure. but since growth is not the core part of our thesis, top line is not, well, is not where we're starting. To have more opportunity naturally available to test our thesis, our hypothesis around everything with you and I just discussing has been beneficial for sure. Well, and I presume just to repeat that small, small to medium business is really your target customer profile. Yep. Is that true? Yep. Yep. So they really That's more small than anything else. Yeah. Look, I know I represent IBM here uh, and I need to get back to IBM. I think the next episode I will, <laughs> but I've been doing a ton of startups. So for those that are listening, where can folks find you and your yeah, business? Uh, CoterieInsurance.com um, or, you know, and I'm sure my details will be, be shared out here. You know, get a hold of me on LinkedIn or, or actually literally I'll throw my email out there too, paul.basir at CoterieInsurance.com. So I uh, would love to connect with anybody who has any thoughts on this. I, I you know, if, if problem solving and innovation are core to who I hope we are and who I want to be, then anybody who has a problem or a thought on what we've talked about, would love to hear that perspective. Basir being B-E-S-S-I-R-E, correct? Exactly. Just to make sure people can spell it correctly. Hey, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked? <laughs> uh, no, this has been a blast. So I, I yes, love that fun. question, but we've I've, I've also very much enjoyed, or I appreciate that question. I've also very much enjoyed the, the conversation to date. Covered a lot of ground uh, and, you know, hopefully some of it sticks. It's I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this, and I don't know if we did a great job today, or I did a great job necessarily with this today, but when you talk about making data simple, I used to do sports, and I would, I would have to do you know five to eight minute radio interviews, back to back to back to back to back. And I always thought of it as I wanted anybody listening to my radio uh, hit to have three what I would call tweetable nuggets that they remembered. So like 140 characters or less, 
and never more than like three or potentially four things that would stick. Cause that's, that's generally what people have the appetite and interest to, to think about. So hopefully there's at least three to four tweetable nuggets we got through today. They could be different for everybody necessarily individually, but I'm really hoping as we talk about making data simple, there's a couple of those that really stand out. They're like those, that's the one or two things that I'm going to grasp and run with from this discussion. Well, I like the way you think. I highlight a few of the stuff as you're talking that I will probably socialize. A couple of things are like, see the game. You talked about that. Change the game. Use all the data to underwrite um, box score. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure there's a ton of others that I missed. But look, this has been, I mean, you've got a very interesting job, man. This has been a ton of fun. And it's, it's sure. fun to talk about. For me, it's it's awesome talking about the analytics because that's my day-to-day. You know, I mean, I, IBM, I manage technical sales and yep. I love analytics. I love AI. I love all the technology, but then putting that with practical usage, sports, human nature, I was like the, you got, you got the perfect role. It doesn't sound yeah. like insurance to me, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's exactly, I mean, at this point, that's exactly how I feel. And if we want to, we we'll, we'll crack another couple of those beers open someday and continue the conversation. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. Well, I do hope you'll come back because this was great. Outside of watching sports all the time, what do you do for fun? Uh, well, I've got a three-year-old, so that's most of that's it's going time. to parks and museums and whatever and, and whatever she wants to get herself into. It, that's uh, that's my day to day. Good for you. I got three girls, so man, oh, li- yep. uh, uh, cherish those younger days when you got them cornered. You know where they are <laughs> all the time. Is there a book that you recommend in any of all this that you'd say, oh, this is the one? Or in a well, two-part I question, mean, second part is, yeah. s- second part is, where should I go for fantasy research that's going <laughs> to guarantee a win this year? Yeah. Well, that's where I, you could just like get my number afterward and we can text about it. But, uh, <laughs> well, the, the first question, and I, I don't mean to make this all about sports, uh, but but since that's my background, so much so much of my background, I, there were a couple things that that clicked to me. Um, that were more formative for me. First of all, we just referenced Moneyball, the concept many times, but it's a phenomenal book actually by Michael Lewis that preceded uh, the movie. um, And either of those I I would highly recommend. Um, Second of all, uh, and this was more for my master's thesis, but reading the book Basketball on Paper by Dean Oliver was the thing that really allowed me to understand data. And the reason for it is because it basically starts by saying there's four things that matter in basketball. And you think something so complicated as 10 moving people in a basketball on a 94 by 30, whatever it is, court are, would be incredibly complicated to understand, but there's like four things that matter. And like, that was like, that was the first day I read, I read something and I said, oh, this, this isn't as complicated as everybody would think it is making data simple. That was click for me. Not that you have to read the book, but that was something that worked. And then my last four things, you gotta, you gotta hit us with the four things now. Yeah. Okay. It's your yeah, yeah. Well, there's, I, I taught bracketology, and we used to talk about this all the time. It's how efficient you, you are at shooting. It's how often you turn over the ball. It's how often you get fouled and what you do at the free throw line. It's kind of a combination, but your free throw efficiency. Um, and how often you rebound the basketball. So a possession can only end one of three ways. This was the thing that cl- when I heard this, everything about the rest of my career clicked because <laughs> possession can only end, end one of three ways. All you got to do when figuring out how to predict a basketball game is figure out one of those three things. Is it going to happen on this possession? Then you, when we simulate it, simulate the next possession. And those things are a shot, a turnover, or foul. 
And then wow. if the shot goes up, it can be rebounded, and that can either extend a possession or give the possession to the new team. That's the four things. Well, the next time we hook up, you're going to have to explain to me why we don't play the full court press all the time versus letting the other team come up, set up, get their offense going, and then we start playing defense. I have that a lot of thoughts on that. Bat- that is, we'll <laughs> promise that. I have a lot of thoughts on that, so we'll, 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 we'll wait on okay. that until the next time. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll table that until next time. Paul Basir, thank you for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll get this out uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks. But, uh, look, I learned a lot. It's been a great discussion. Thank you so Enjoy much. It. Thanks, Al. You're a good dude. Thank you. And for those listening to the podcast, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. We'll get the folks on that you'd like to hear from or get the topics on. Let us know. Talk to you later. Bye.